So we're going to turn to the next part of 1 Corinthians. Uh, if you're here for the first time or occasionally visiting, then we're, we're reading our way through 1 Corinthians. We've been kind of in and out with it. Um, but today we come to chapter 11. I'm going to read there verses 2 to 16. I'm hoping that's what's going to appear on this too. To, yep. Okay, great. Okay. So we've left the whole section, chapters 8, 9, and 10, all about idle feasts, and we're moving on. Hurrah, you say. But not moving on to a particularly easy passage. Uh, but let's look at it and see what we can make of it, what we can learn from it. So from verse 2, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I passed them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God." Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, that, is her, that it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Amen. May God give us understanding of His Word. Hmm. If you want, uh, there the are Bibles on the tables if you want to follow along, so just grab one and you can, uh, you can follow on. Uh, but before we do that, um, is the video clip available? We're going to watch a little video clip. So my question is, is topic 
hair fiber or hair builder fibers against the will of God. Because if that guy's head is uncovered, then should he be covering it with fake hair? These are the issues, or are they? This is not an easy passage, and actually just about every New Testament scholar, academic, and commentator says this is not an easy passage. So, we could just do the thing that it's sometimes convenient to do with parts of the New Testament, which would just be to ignore it, wish it wasn't there, and uh, just give it a little bit of a body swerve. That would be the easy cop-out thing to do, wouldn't it? Um, Because so much of Paul's language and so much of what he says here sounds uh, so offensive in modern, enlightened, Western ears. All this stuff about uh, uh, men and uh, women and the glory of God and so on. But uh, I'm not sure that I'm necessarily going to... um, Sorry, just making sure that I don't run over time-wise. You'd be delighted to know. Um, I want to challenge you and... and, uh, In fact, actually, I'm just going to do that right now. I wasn't going to do this, but I am going to do this. What do you make of this passage? Talk about it around the tables. What do you find find most difficult? And what do you see in it that is uh, most hopeful or affirming? Why is it here? Talk about it around the tables, okay? What do you struggle with? Maybe let's ask the easy question. What do you struggle with in this passage? Anyone want to say? Was woman, oh no, no, it was man created for women, but women for man. Okay, all right. Okay, so that's a struggle. Um, Okay, anything else? Verse 2 to 16, okay, (laughs) fair enough. You're struggling with that small part of the passage? Okay. All right. Okay. Right. Well, I can imagine only too easily the sorts of things that you're struggling with because this passage doesn't sit well in our modern sensibilities. Um, But I want to encourage you to think about this in the context of other difficult passages in the Bible because the Bible does have uh, what some people call toxic texts. Uh, passages in the Bible that are difficult or hard for us to understand because he seemed to be seeing something that just either doesn't make sense or, or seems so offensive, uh, particularly if you pluck verses uh, out of context and just make them stand on their own without, um, without the, the, the words round about them. Man created for women, but women for man, uh, standing on its own, it's, it seems to appears to emphasize uh, a, a subordination as though woman's only purpose was to be created for a man, for his benefit, for his help, for his pleasure, for whatever, his control, domination, rule. All of the toxic ways in which that's been interpreted uh, down through history. So I want to encourage you to think about when, when you come to a difficult passage, um, first thing that we have to do is to understand the situation in its context, okay? Understand the situation in the context when it was written, and then seek to draw out what is the biblical principle 
that is uh, behind this passage. And then what is the equivalent in our times of that situation, even if the cultural markers are radically different? And how then do we apply that principle for today? Okay, so we need to start with the context. Now, you guys have been doing the Corinthians journey, most of you, for long enough to have a measure of this situation. The briefest whistle stop for those who are with us today for the first time, Corinth, um, a busy trade city, a port city, cross-cultural in every sense, from east to west and north to south. Rich people, poor people, slave people, free people, ethnically diverse. There would be people who were Romans, people who were Greeks. There would be people uh, who were, certainly there was a Jewish colony there. And the church was drawn from all of those. Also, we have to understand that what Paul is, the context that Paul specifically is addressing here is the context of what happens when the church comes together to worship. Okay, he's moved on from a whole section about how do you deal with idol feasts and meat sold in the marketplace and so on. How do you keep your conscience clear and make sure that your conduct as a Christian doesn't offend other people? But now chapter 11, chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14, this next whole section is about what's church meant to look like. Okay, we, we all know that 1 Corinthians, well, maybe we don't all know, but let me tell you, if you don't, 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, if you want to find out anything about spiritual gifts in the New Testament, where do you go? 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14, because that's what the focus is, because that's all about how are the gifts of the Holy Spirit meant to operate in worship. And bang in between the two of those is 1 Corinthians 13, which gets read at every second wedding, because that's the chapter all about love. And that is the oil, in a sense, that is meant to uh, lubricate the exercise of gifts or the conduct of worship in the church. And 1 Corinthians 11 talks about uh, two things mainly. Next week, we'll come on to the part where he talks about um, how to do communion properly, how, how the Lord's Supper is meant to be shared and celebrated. The first part He's talking about what it's meant to look like when uh, men and women come together in worship and what, the, what the, the, the kind of the balance of relationships are in, uh, between men and women in the life of the church. And I actually want to argue that this passage is really pretty well balanced. It might not look like it's well balanced, and it might sound to modern ears like it's quite offensive towards women, but actually it's not the case at all. There's a debate in the church that has gone on and, uh, for some time, and, and it's, it, it settles around two words, egalitarian and complementarian. Now, if you don't know what those words mean, uh, let me just unpack them. Egalitarian, an egalitarian view, suggests that men and women are absolutely equal in all things. And it would look back to one current, uh, sorry, Genesis chapter 1, 26 to 28, where God created mankind, humankind in his own image. Male and female, he created them. And so there's a suggestion of, of balance there between male and female in one part of the creation narrative. 
Okay, so an egalitarian view says men and women are equal. And certainly that would be the, 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 the agenda in our uh, society that we would, would, uh, would, would push to say men and women are equal in all respects and in all things. A complementarian view takes the view that men and women are not equal but have been made different from each other, but in a complementary sense. Now, the most basic and obvious expression of that is that no child can be born without the complementarity of a male and a female coming together. That's just basic biology. But beyond that, a recognition that God has made men and women different, and that by His design, men have far more testosterone, and women have far more estrogen and progesterone. So, at the level of body chemistry, God has created men and women to have different chemicals uh, in the ascendancy. Now, it's not that men don't have estrogen, and it's not that women don't have testosterone, but it does mean that they're in different degrees to one another. It's actually why men, if they drink too much, get man boobs. Because alcohol suppresses testosterone and allows estrogen to rise, which allows, leads to the formation of breasts. And it's also why women develop facial hair post-menopause, because as estrogen levels drop, the testosterone levels come up, therefore facial hair develops. So, body chemistry is intrinsic to the way that God has created us. So, how are we to sort this out? Now, we can either sort it out by doing what the church often does and loves to do, which is to have a massive big pitch battle and stand in corners and throw things at one another and say, I'm right and you're wrong. Or we can do what I believe Paul is seeking to do here, which is to hold egalitarianism and complementarianism in tension with one another. Why do I think that? Well, let's just park that for a moment and think about the culture he was writing to. In Roman culture, in the Roman world, it was required that people, that women in particular, uh, cover their heads in worship. In Greek culture, it was required that women had their heads uncovered. And so, already we've got a difference in the cultural norm. There's also other tensions that might be uh, around in this passage. There's a tension between the rich and the poor. The church in Corinth, in all likelihood, met in somebody's house. And if the house was big enough to have the church meet in it, then it was probably a, a sizable house. And the chances are that that sizable house was therefore owned by people of some means. And one of the ways a woman could express, certainly in a Greek culture, a woman could express her wealth was that she might have a, an expensive hairdo. And therefore, to show off that expensive hairdo was just part of what you did culturally. It was a sign of displaying your wealth, the same way as, as maybe having, you know, two posh cars in the drive and a caravan. 
just a sign of your opulence. And there's also a difference between public and private. Now, we know from Muslim culture that a, a married woman is expected today, certainly in some branches of, of the Islamic faith, to keep their head covered and to be covered to different degrees. Whether it be a hijab, a niqab, or a full burqa, there are different degrees of being covered up depending on the cultural background and the faith conviction and which, uh, well, presumably, I don't know enough about it, whether you're Sunni or Shiite, whether you're from a, a strict Orthodox background or not. There are shades. When Ruth and I were in uh, the States on sabbatical in 1998, we, we, we lived in Lancaster County, which is full of Amish and Mennonite people. And there were loads of Mennonites and Mennonite churches. And oh my goodness, the different shades of what you could and couldn't do if you were Amish or Mennonite. You know, there were some Mennonites who just dressed normally and you wouldn't know who they were. Then there were the black bumper Mennonites. You could have any car you like as long as it's black. And if it comes with chrome bumpers, you have to paint those black. So different degrees of strictness. And of course, if you're Amish, then you're driving a buggy and you're not using electricity and, and you have a pudding bowl haircut and all the rest of it. So culturally both ethnically and from a faith basis, we all understand that people express and, and, and send signs differently about who they are and what is respectful and appropriate within that culture. Because every, every, everything says something. And people will judge other people by what they wear or don't wear. Okay, Paul is writing to a church, and actually he's writing to a church where in many respects there's quite a progressive agenda going on. Now, I know elsewhere he talks about women keeping silent in the church, but I want you to see what Paul is talking about here. He is talking about every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. What is common to those two statements? Both men and women pray and prophesy in the church. So in public worship, both men and women are involved. Now that's a radical departure. That's a radical departure reflecting the fact that the ministry of Jesus involve women as well as men. Luke chapter 8, first three verses, describes how the ministry of Jesus and the disciples was financed and supported by the wealth of women who are named there, who were women of means. Women were the first at the tomb to bear witness to the resurrection. Jesus could have revealed himself to Peter and John easily, but we know it was to women that he revealed himself in risen form. And so, what are we to do with this? Because on the one hand, there are cultural norms operating in this society, and I'll be honest, academic scholars, commentators, we don't know for sure what they were. 
We don't know for sure all the nuances of what Paul is saying here, but know that the church in Corinth understood perfectly what he was saying. And so here's a mixed congregation, a cultural clash. Some women, perhaps, thinking, well, the church meets in a home, so the home rules apply. Because in the house, a woman, certainly to this day, a Muslim woman in the house will not be wearing a head covering or a face covering or anything. That comes off in the house. It's only in public. And so, if the church is meeting in somebody's home, is it in public or is it in private? If the woman owns the house, is she at home or is she now in a public gathering because the church has come into her home? What are the rules that are meant to apply? Now, I don't think we need to get hung up about hair length or hats or head coverings because actually that's the stuff that the people in Corinth had to worry about because they had to deal with their cultural norms. Those cultural norms do not apply. So what then, if those cultural norms don't apply, are we to do with this passage? Are we then just to say, well, let's just bin it, because it was for then, it's not for now, there's nothing we can learn from this? Or might we look and see what Paul is charging men and women to remember? Because it's very easy. I would imagine if you're a woman, it'd be very easy to fixate, uh, to focus on the bits that, that talk about uh, women being made for the glory of men and men being over women and, and, and so on. But let's be quite clear that it starts off by saying the head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. In Philippians, those famous verses in the Philippian hymn start off by saying, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so Jesus has modeled for us a principle that though he was in very nature God and could have taken advantage of his divine nature for his own needs or purposes, he humbled himself. Though he could have turned stones into bread when he was hungry, he humbled himself because it wasn't God's way. Though he could have sent, called on the Father to send a legion of angels, he humbled himself because he knew that the cross was the way. Though he could easily have answered the suggestion of the crowd 
or the thief on the cross, that he save himself and them and come down off the cross. He humbled himself and chose to put your interests and my interests ahead of his own interests. You see, we live in a world that is absolutely obsessed and and now increasingly to its detriment with its rights over its responsibilities. We all know what we're entitled to, but we don't care too much about what we have to do or ought to do. I was, you know, encouraged to go out yesterday with my neighbors and dig some snow in the street, and it was on the news. Isn't it fantastic that communities are rising up and clearing the streets together? You know, I know I'm getting to be like that age, but when I was a kid, that never made it to the news. In fact, there was a bylaw in Edinburgh where I grew up that said that you were legally obliged to clear the bit of pavement outside your, your house. See, it wasn't that people were doing an amazingly noble thing by clearing the street. That was your responsibility. You didn't just sit back and wait and complain because they hadn't sent a plow down or the men from the council hadn't been down to clear it for you. You did what you did to serve the community. That was a principle that was embedded in society. But you see, we're now so focused on our rights. What Paul is talking about here is not submission or subversion. He is asking men and women to think about, and we have to think afresh about it in 2018 in Glasgow, whether you're male or female, what does it look like for you to live, conduct yourself, and treat other people as someone who is in submission to Jesus Christ? And if you're a man, what does it look like for you to honor and respect a woman as someone who is equally gifted and equally able to play a full part in the life of of the church and in society? And yet, what does it mean to be a Christian male and to fulfill your manhood? Because there's a crisis of masculinity. Because men have been told that they're, they're, they're rubbish. They're all rapists. They're all monsters. They're all hopeless. They're all a disaster. And I would like to suggest that that's why suicide rates amongst young men are absolutely going through the roof because nobody needs to be told all the time that they're rubbish. But at the same time, what does it mean for a Christian man to honor and respect a woman? What does it mean for a Christian woman to honor and respect other Christian women, other people, and men? You see, this is about What does it look like if people recognize the uniqueness and the distinctiveness of the way God has made them? And I'm sorry, I know there's the whole kind of transgender fluidity thing. God made us male and female, and I understand that for some people there are big questions and difficulties, and I don't know whether that is an emotional, psychological, environmental, or chemical thing. I just don't know. 
But you see, we have to deal as Christians with what Scripture teaches us, which is that God has made us unique and distinct, and we therefore have to ask ourselves, whether men or women, what the sign of our submission as Christians looks like, what the sign of obedience looks like in our lives. Because Paul's teaching, as much as it has been taken out of context and badly misused and abused, was never intended as a license to dominate or oppress or victimize women. This is about men and women finding out and discovering how to honor one another and how to submit themselves to Christ. That's why there's a reciprocity here which sits on either side of verse 10. Because you cannot take verses um, 8 and 9, for man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man, without also taking verses 11 and 12, which are the balancing verses. They sit either side of verse 10, which we'll come back to. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. You know, in, in Semitic writings, there's a balancing thing that goes on. There are, it's, a, it's, it's a chiastic structure, if you want the posh name for it, where a, a, something said at the beginning will be balanced by something at the end. Something second idea in will be balanced by second last idea. Third idea in will be balanced by a third last idea, and there'll be a core central idea. Paul begins the passage by saying, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. So there's a word about traditions and customs and practices right at the beginning. What does he finish with? If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Traditions, customs, and practices. You see two ideas balancing one another. And when we come into the central idea, we've got this idea of, of, uh, of women being made for man, but Paul balancing it by saying men and women come from each other. They are mutually interdependent. And at the center, nevertheless, in the Lord, sorry, wrong verse. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. That's a weird verse, right? What does that even mean? Why mention the angels? What was it Jesus said of Satan? I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. What was the problem with evil? We believe, we understand, although the background and the details are sketchy, that Satan is a fallen angel, an insubordinate angel, that actually evil is in some way connected with the insubordination of angels. And I think, and I'm quite open to being argued with and told I'm wrong here, it's my pet theory, that what Paul is saying here is, folks, as Christians, 
we are free to pray and to prophesy and to minister and to serve together. And we need to find ways as men and women of fulfilling our God-given masculinity and femininity and living under and within whatever sign of honoring other people that looks like and fulfilling what it means to be a godly man and a godly woman in such a way that we live as those who have a sign of the fact that I'm marked as belonging to Jesus and I'm under his authority and I submit to his authority for the angel's sake. Let's not give the angels any suggestion or sign ever again of insubordination or throwing off and saying, I'm not going to do that. You're not going to tell me to do that. Because rebellion is the antithesis and the opposite of humility and submission, which Jesus modeled in being obedient to death on a cross. This is not about male-female subversion or the battle of the sexes. That goes on out there. We are called as men and women to work out what it means and what it looks like to affirm the gifts, the qualities, the uniqueness, the opportunities in which Paul was actually quite progressive for both men and women. But to do so in a way that was going to sit alongside a recognition that men and women are different and they bring different things to the table and they do it different ways because that's the way God's made us. Because to flatten the distinction between men and women in the most brutal form of egalitarianism is to deny the way that God has created us. It's to refuse to accept that there's anything different between us and we're both entirely, exactly the same. But we know we're not. So it's to affirm difference. It's to affirm uniqueness. It's to affirm whatever it looks like to fulfill your creation design in a way that brings honor, respect, humility, affirmation, and encouragement. The whole subtext of this letter in Corinth is to this church, guys, will you please stop thinking about what suits you and look to see what suits your brother or your sister in Christ? Will you look to see how you can affirm in love your brothers and sisters? Bring out the best in them. Don't put a stumbling block in front of them. Don't pursue what you want at the expense of other people. Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but made himself nothing. How can we honor one another How can we respect one another? How can we affirm one another? In a society where there is an agenda that is leading the sexes to hate one another. And maybe the challenge of our generation is to be those who 
have a different narrative from that, who refuse to allow our minds or hearts to be taken captive with the 21st century correctness or hatred agenda, to be able to affirm difference as a God-given thing, to be able to honor and respect and show respect to one another. Now, that doesn't mean that everything goes on that goes on out there is, is right or good. And both male and female are guilty. But our job, our prophetic role as a church, is to model a kinder way, a way of reconciliation, a way of respect and honor. Not just the way of rights, but the way of responsibility. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we recognize and offer back to you, Lord, this passage that we wrestle with because it's difficult. And read at face value, it says things that jar and provoke and anger even. But Lord, I pray that we may each reflect on what it means for us as man or woman to fulfill our calling, to celebrate the gifts distributed freely without distinction between male and female, the opportunities, the ministries, the callings, the talents, the abilities, and to express those within the uniqueness of what it means to be a godly man or a godly woman. And all, Lord, in submission to Christ who is in submission to God. Lord, help us. There are so many minefields of thought and attitude, action and reaction, provocation. Forgive us, Lord, on behalf of men and women in the world for the ways in which we have caused injury and damage to one another by oppression, domination, violence, hatred. Forgive us, Lord. And Lord, we pray that you will bring reconciliation because it is the enemy who is behind every attempt to destroy your created order and its balance. We recognize, Lord, that we, what we, the truth of what we read in Scripture, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, not against one another, but an enemy that would seek to undo at every level your creation, its balance, and how it's meant to function so that every human life can flourish and prosper, be affirmed, nurtured, and grow in security and love to find its fulfillment. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for the damage that's been done and show us what it means to be a sign of grace and humility and to use our unique giftedness as a, different, as a sign of a different way. For in the name of Jesus, we pray.